Well, <clears throat> while everyone is getting settled, let me thank you for the opportunity I've had this year to minister here at the conference. I always enjoy coming down and uh, bringing some books and renewing fellow friendships and meeting new people. I always enjoy the music, the good food, fellowship, but it's always a special privilege to be able to uh, minister the Word of God. And I thank you for the opportunity that you've given to me to do that. And thank your pastor, Brother Nigel, good friend, for giving me this opportunity for Brother Kendall and uh, the ministry here at the church. And it's been a delight and a refreshment to come down, except for the cold. <laughs> If you could get rid of that, I'd come more often. <laughs> no, I can put up with that. The warmth of the fellowship is always good. So thank you very much for extending your warmth to us and um, uh, sending us back home refreshed. And trust the Lord will continue to bless your ministry here as a church and as families with your own children. You pray for us. We pray for you. And uh, if we're here next year, uh, we'll get together. If not, we'll meet in heaven, in, as was sung, in the sweet by and by. And that will be much better, won't it? And so we want to turn our attention in that direction this morning or this evening. So if you take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, I'm going to read for us in a moment verses 9 through 23, and I'm entitling the message this evening, Living in the Lamb's Glory. During the messages I've had here at the conference, we took our first message to encounter God's glory, introducing ourselves to Exodus 34 and the verbal pronouncement of it, and looking at Ezekiel chapter 1 and the visual display of it, and then noting why God chose to reveal himself to us through his glory. And then we spent the last four messages giving consideration to God's glory and protection, God's glory and guidance, God's glory and revelation, and God's glory and worship. And if I had to follow that same theme tonight, I would say that we're going to consider God's glory and rest. Or if you want to add to that, God's glory and fellowship with him. In heaven. Revelation 21. Let's pray this evening and then we'll read these verses together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that now that our sins have been forgiven and we have confidence of that, that we can have an assured hope, a confident hope, an expectation that we will live in heaven someday with you. Lord, thank you for that, for that confidence. And we would pray that if it would be your will, that you would send your Son to take us home as soon as you see fit and your will would allow. We pray with John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But you've led us here tonight. You've not sent your Son yet. You've brought us here this evening, so we pray that you'd bless our time and instruct us from your word, encourage us, help us, Lord, strengthen us. And we pray this in your Son's name, amen. Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to begin reading with verse 9 and read down to verse 23. Of course, the Apostle John is giving a testimony here of a vision that the Lord gave to him. And he says, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come up hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like 
unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And, continuing the description of the city, and it had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in, the in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square. In other words, it's a cube. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth chrysosporus, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, every several gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, and it was transparent glass, as if it, it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and of the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof, living in the Lamb's glory. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have the remarkable accounts of the pilgrim walk of many of the Old Testament saints. One of those individuals is Abraham, the friend of God. And what he is known for is his pilgrim faith. That even though he was in the land promised to him by God, he still would not settle down and dwell there as a permanent resident. Even though he was living in his divinely appointed inheritance, he still dwelled there as a stranger and as a pilgrim. Why was that? The Bible's answer is that he dwelled there with that mentality because, quote, he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. There can be no doubt that the city Abraham was looking for was the city that we just read about. In heaven, there's a city prepared and built by God for those who live and walk by faith. Now, maybe you're a person who's grown up in the country and rural areas and the prospect of living in a city for all of eternity doesn't sound very inviting to you. After all, cities are crowded. You're surrounded by concrete and cement rather than beautiful trees. The streets are narrow, there's crime and sirens and people are everywhere. Living in a city for eternity may not sound like a very happy prospect. But folks, this city isn't going to be like any earthly city we know or have known. This city is going to be filled with a splendor and beauty and brilliance which surpasses anything that the human mind could ever conceive of. 
And all of that magnificence will be illuminated by the radiating glory of the Lamb, God's Son. What will it be like to bask in the glory of the Lamb? Well, tonight is the last message in our short series on the glory of God. And after introducing ourselves to some of the manifestation of God's glory to Israel as they journeyed to the promised land, what could be more fitting to conclude our series with than a message on the glory that awaits the New Testament believers in the land promised to them by God? Oh, that will be glory, glory for me, the hymn writer wrote. Living in the Lamb's glory in the heavenly Jerusalem. The great city of God, what will that be like? Well, the place to begin in contemplating that question is with an understanding of the biblical material. That's the place we've started with every one of our series, right? If you've got the outlines, you know that. Same outline, same starting point. The biblical material. And there are two points that will highlight what will make living in this glory a joy and blessing. And this is just by way of background and context. Two points, there are two things that will highlight what will make living in the Lamb's glory in heaven a great joy and blessing. Number one, as magnificent as it was in the Old Testament for Israel to live in the glow of God's glory cloud, and that would have been magnificent, right? I mean, that would have been spectacular to see God's glory cloud up there on Mount Sinai, to point out to your children that that is God leading us, to see God's glory fill the tabernacle. That would have been magnificent. But as magnificent as that, that would have been, its limitations cause it to pale in comparison to the glory of God in heaven. In the first place, the glory of the pillar of cloud and fire was magnificent, but it was never fully satisfying. It would have been an awesome experience to both see and live under the dynamics of the grace of God's glory cloud, but it had its drawbacks. For instance, the cloud appeared and disappeared. Its unpredictable appearance and movements may have contributed to its mystery and magnificence, but it did not promote spiritual peace and rest. And it was always on the move. It came to rest, but then it moved again. The people were always being uprooted to follow it. They experienced no real stable home. And it drew near to people in blessing, but then it judged them when they disobeyed. And even Moses, who stood in its midst, longed for greater intimacy with God. Show me your glory, he cried out. He seemed to realize that as awesome as God's glory in the cloud was, the full glory of God must actually surpass what he was actually seeing. And he wanted more. So as magnificent as this cloud was, it had its limitations. And folks, even, and we haven't gone there in our series, but even when the cloud finally came to rest in the temple of Solomon, the temple Solomon had built, its appearance still had unsatisfying drawbacks. It did not remain permanently visible in the temple. It was still veiled and only afforded a cloudy glimpse of God's full majesty. And though it provided some sense of stability and security, it ultimately could not abide with sinful people. Originally, it seemed to be a blessing, but the holy glory of God and the self-centered sin of the people were totally incompatible. 
No wonder Isaiah cried out when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. No wonder he cried out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To be confronted with the glory of God was to feel the horrible weight and burden of sin. So God's glory in the Old Testament was spectacular and magnificent. But it was extremely limited and somewhat unsatisfying. But in heaven, all of that is going to change. That heavenly glory beaming from the Lamb will provide both the rest and the fellowship promised to Israel, but never ultimately experienced by them. There will be rest. God said to Israel in Exodus 33, 14, My presence will go with thee on the way to the promised land. My presence will go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And although it was never fully realized by those Old Testament people, someday the people of God will experience it in a real and a complete way. No more wandering, no more upheaval. No more labor, no more toil. No more battles and no more war. No more anxiety and no more worry or panic or stress or fear. Nothing but total rest and peace. That would be a great day. And with the heavenly glory, there will be unending and unhindered fellowship with God. Listen to what God told Israel in Leviticus 26. And then listen to what God told John in Revelation 21. Listen. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with me, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Israel will be the ultimate enjoyment of fellowship with God in heaven. In its supreme and paramount experience, God will dwell with men and they will daily, in an unhindered and unrestricted way, be able to enjoy the presence of God, worshiping and intimately fellowshipping with Him. Finally, Finally, after centuries, finally, men will be brought back into a personal relationship with God through direct and unmediated communion with Him. Finally, there will be rest and there will be the fellowship we long for. But a second thing by way of background and context, a second thing that highlights the joy and blessing of heaven, folks, is this. In heaven, we will be able to see and live in the full manifestation of God's glory and majesty. And up to that point, no one has ever been able to do that because it will strike them dead. The saintly Job declared, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, in my, in my flesh, my own eyes, I will see God. Now I don't know how much revelation Job had been given about the new glorified body of the saints. But somewhere, God must have spoken to him of the reality of every child of God seeing him with their very own eyes. God had stated to Moses that in our present bodies no man can see God and live. But someday God will change our vile bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Philippians 3.21 And at that moment... 
Fanny Crosby's hymn will become a reality. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be when with rapture I behold Him? Jesus Christ who died for me. What will it be like to see the full radiant glory of the Lamb in its unveiled state and to see it face to face? Well, we'll get an even better picture of that if we move to the second subpoint under the biblical material. And that is an understanding of the key interpretive points. Notice again what Revelation 21, 23 says. Look what it says. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Lamb will be the light of God's glory? Well, let's begin here. What is God's glory? I mean, if the Lamb is the light of it, we better find out what God's glory is. And if you were here Saturday morning when we looked at Ezekiel and Exodus, you know exactly what God's glory is. In Exodus 34, God's glory was given to us, explained to us by God Himself as the sum total of His attributes. And God gave a verbal pronouncement, an expository explanation, an expository sermon, if you will, on His attributes and His character. But when that glory is displayed visually like it is here in Revelation 21 as the light that illuminates heaven, what does that look like? Well, you remember in Ezekiel we were told what it looks like. It looks like a radiance. Well, the word in Ezekiel is brightness, which means a radiance. It looks like a brightness or a radiance, but remember Ezekiel's what Ezekiel saw? But like a radiance that is refracted in a cloud so that the light breaks up into the colors of the spectrum like what you see with a rainbow. And I use the illustration to try to help us with that. I use the illustration of our scene, the white light of the sun. And this morning we were here and out there between here and the fellowship area out there, the sun was shining and it was bright. Now I didn't look up at the sun. But there was the white light of the sun shining down. But in my illustration, you remember, I pointed out that if you take a prism and put that out there in the light and let the white light of the sun shine through the prism, it will break up into the colors of the rainbow, a spectacular, splendid spectrum of beautiful colors. That's what Ezekiel saw. The white light of God's glory, but broken up. That glory surrounded the throne of God and then broken up into the colors of the spectrum. And though the passage doesn't specifically say, state this, my thinking would be the reason it's broken up into those colors is because God's glory is His attributes. So I don't know what His love is. Maybe, maybe that's red. I mean, I'm just speculating now, okay? That's not really so. But in my illustration, you understand, and what, what Ezekiel said, that here's these attributes, and they're all broken up. And here's the rainbow, all broken up, and Ezekiel sees this. So what does God's glory look like visually? I ask that again, because it is shining in heaven. And when you get to heaven, and like Job, you see God with your own eyes, what are you going to be seeing? I mean, what should we expect to see? But the brightness 
and the radiance of God's glory broken up into these spectacular colors. You can only imagine that. Now, Revelation 21-23 tells us that Christ is the light or the lamp of that glory. And I say lamp because the word light is a different word and it means lamp. Not a candle, but a lamp. Christ is the lamp of God's glory. The glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is the light that radiates that light. Let me state that again. The glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is the lamp that radiates that glory or illumination. Now, right away, you're doing what I'm doing. We're trying to find somewhere to hang our thoughts on, some peg. In other words, we're saying, you know, our, we naturally want to say, well, what does that look like? Well, there's going to be two passages in the New Testament that will help us understand what this means. That the glory of God illuminates a city. Okay, we can follow that. But the Lamb is the light that radiates that glory. And there's two New Testament passages that are going to help us understand that. The first one, some of you may have already thought of. It's in Hebrews chapter 1. Go over there with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, you may want to keep a finger, a little bookmark in Revelation 21, because we'll come back there. But look in Hebrews chapter 1. Some of you already know where we're going. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, that's the Son, talking about Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice what it says. In verse 3, it states that the Son of God is the brightness of or the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the outshining, or the emanation of God's glory. What does that look like? What does that look like that the Son is the outshining of the Father's glory? Again, we're trying to think of something to help us understand that. And as I was working on this, one of the resources, I came across one of the resources that used an illustration that I want to share with you now that helped me. It wasn't totally satisfying because we're trying to describe something here that's infinite and part of the Trinity. And it's, I don't know that we can really get our head fully around it, but here was an illustration that a resource used. Have you ever had the experience of in the morning sitting in your home facing a window as the sun was coming up. Okay, it hasn't quite come up yet. Now, I can picture this because we're just two blocks from the ocean. So the ocean is right down, you know, the horizon's right down there. And I can see, you know, I can, I can see the sun coming up. I can see the glow. I can see the horizon begin to glow. And I can see the first little bit when the sun comes up. Now imagine sitting in your home, maybe you have. You've been sitting in your home and it's still grayish. The sun's not up yet, it's still down below the horizon. You know, you know how it is, it's kind of grayish out there. And uh, slowly the sky begins to lighten. 
And at first the room is dark and slowly the light, the room begins to brighten. And then all of a sudden, as the sun comes right up over the horizon, there will be the light glinting off of maybe the Venetian blinds or the pane of glass. And it will shine into the room. And there is the sun way out there. I mean, the sun is, you know, how many thousands, millions of kilometers away the sun is, way out there on the horizon. But then there are those beams of light shining into the room. And what that light and those beams are to the sun, the Son of God is to the Father. He himself is the outshining, the effulgence, the radiating of the glory of God. And it's not that the sun and the beams are two separate things. You can't separate them. You can't have one for the other. I mean, there is the sun and there are beams, but you can't separate them. They're, the, they're, they're together. You can't have the beams without the sun. You can't have the sun without the beams. Again, we're thinking of Trinity kind of ideas here, God's Trinity. But here they are. You can't separate the sun from the Father, just like you can't separate the light from the source of the light and put it in a container all by itself. So listen to this. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light. Well, the Father is the light, and the Son is the light of the light. The Father is the glory unseen, and the Son is the glory visible. It's not a different glory. It's the same glory. The Father is the source of the divine glory, and the the Son is the radiance of that glory. The Father radiates His glory through the Son. Now, how can the Son be the radiance of the Father's glory? Not just that He radiates it like you would reflect the glory, like the moon reflects the glory of the sun. That's not the picture here. It is not that the sun reflects the God, the Father's glory, but that he himself is the radiation of that glory, so that he could say to people, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How can that be? Because of the second statement in Hebrews 1.11. Look what it says. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The Son of God is the express image of the Father's nature. Now, no creature on earth or in the angelic world has about it the nature of God. None of it. God alone has a particular nature, a nature that is unique to Him. But there is this. When it comes to the Father's nature, the Son is different than anything else out there. The Son is different. He is the exact image. He is the exact character of it. The express image, the exact representation of it. And the reason I use the word character is because these two words, express image, are the words, the word that we get our English word character from. Not the kind of character that my mother used to refer to, like to the neighborhood children, the neighbor kids or somebody who would come over and she'd say, man, they're a real character. Not that kind of character. But the kind of character, it refers here to an engraved character that is made by a die or a seal. Have you ever been to the Australian Mint in Canberra? Okay. Now, it was about five years ago we were there, so my memory may have faded a little bit. 
But as I remember, you could go in and you came around and there were those people making the special coins that were worth a lot of money and you kind of went up a little ramp and you waited and you could look through on this side over here, this great big window, and you could see them making the $2 coins, the $1 coins down there. And they had these big, remember this, they had, as I remember, they had these big barrels of blanks. You know, they, they, were, they were like $2 coins, but there was nothing on them. They were totally blank. And they dumped those things into a hopper, something of that nature. And those blanks, there was, in, you know, then they went into a machine and boom, boom, boom. And the machine stamped on the blank the character that you see on the $2 coin. And when you took the $2 coin out, what you saw there, the character, was exactly what was in the die of the machine. The exact same image. And the Bible says that Christ is the exact image, the exact character of the Father. The exact perfect character and image as the nature of the Father. Now, of course, we're getting into the area of the Trinity. Two separate beings with the same nature. And we can't fully explain that. But the passage is stating this. The reason the Son can be spoken of as the outshining of the very glory of of all the perfections of the Father is because of what He is by nature. He too is deity. So in heaven, He is the light or the lamp of the Father's glory. And as such, He radiates and illuminates the entire city. Now, what's remarkable, folks, is that one, on one occasion when the Lord was here on the earth, on one occasion, that glory was on display for some men to see. Now, John 2 does say at the wedding of Cana, after he performed the miracle, that the disciples did see his glory through the miracles. So that's true. But there was one occasion when Christ took three men up on a mountain and they saw his glory in veiled form. What did that look like? Remember, we're trying to get a picture of what it's going to be like to live under the Lamb's glory in heaven. This brilliant glory of Mount Sinai, of the cloud that filled the tabernacle. That God said to Moses, if you look at it, you're going to die. But someday, with my eyes, and I won't have glasses, but with my glorified eyes, with my blue eyes, my eyes are blue, with my blue eyes, I will see God in His full glory. And the sun will lighten all of heaven and I won't be blinded by that because I will have new glorified eyes and I will be able to look around and take in the splendor of it all. And on one occasion, three men got a little glimpse of that. Turn over to Matthew 17 with me. Look at Matthew chapter 17. And we're not going to take a long time here because most of you are probably familiar with this. But in Matthew chapter 7, 17, verses 1 through 8, we have particularly referred to in verse number 2, what's referred to as the transfiguration. Verse 1, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and begin, uh, bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. Let me use another word that we might be able to grasp a little better. He was transformed before them. Transformed from just an ordinary human figure to his deity shining out from within him. 
And the result of that was twofold, at least explained in the text is twofold. I'm sure there were other results of this, but it says in verse number two that one result was that his face did shine as the sun. Can you picture that? Imagine someone standing. Now, I know what it looks like to look at the sun. Okay? Look at the sun. I mean, you can't tonight. It's dark. But we know what it's like to look at the sun. And our eyes, we look, and then we look away, and there, you know, there's all these circles and colors, and we're trying to you know, blink and get our focus back. And his face looked like the sun. And that's in veiled form because if it was the full glory, they would have died on the spot. His face looked like the sun. And then it says, and his raiment was white as light. What does that look like? Well, Mark, both Mark and Luke help us with that. Mark says, as white as snow. And some of you have seen the snow, right? I'm not just talking about seeing snow. I'm talking about seeing snow when you wake up in the morning and the snow has fallen overnight and you wake up and the sun is up and no one has walked on the snow and you look out on the snow and the sun reflecting on it in its pure, pristine whiteness. And if you don't put sunglasses on, you'll be blinded. I'm not sure literally, but it'll be like looking at the sun. Some of you have seen that. Now Luke adds to that. Catch the way Luke puts it. Luke says that his clothing was white and glistering. Or white and flashing like lightning. Dazzling and gleaming white, flashing like lightning. And I'm not sure that Luke is trying to say, I don't want to read into Luke and reinterpret him, but that it was like, you know, lightning flashing out. But you know how it is when something is white and, you know, you move it a little bit and it just, it, it just woo, jumps out at you. And, you know, the, the glare and the glow and the brightness. This is what these men saw in veiled form. And Christ has that glory in heaven. And what these men were seeing in that moment was nothing but the outshining of his deity within. In fact, Luke comes just right out and states that what they actually saw was his glory. Luke states that directly. We saw his glory. And later, John confirmed that when he wrote, you know this verse, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That glory was full and comprised of his omnipotence, his omniscience, his long-suffering, his graciousness, his love, his meekness, his goodness, his generosity. His glory was filled with that, full of grace and truth. And John says, I saw it up there on the mount. This is what Ezekiel saw. This is what Paul saw on the road to Damascus. This is probably what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. In a veiled way, this is what Israel saw on Mount Sinai and in the glory cloud that led them. And folks, there's no doubt that this is what we will see in heaven. With our very own eyes, we will see the glory of the Father as radiated through the glory of the Son. And here is what will lighten heaven, this outshining of his deity, this radiance and brightness of his glory that has about it the splendor of the sun and the brilliant colors of the rainbow. Now, what are we to make of all of that? 
This will be the light and the glory under which we will live for all of eternity. So what are we to make of that? What will this mean for us? Well, what this means is that we will live or bask in the Lamb's glory. We will enjoy and spiritually, now stay with me, we will enjoy and you need to put your mind thinking about Exodus 34 and Ezekiel 1, we will enjoy and spiritually benefit from the glory of the Lamb as it pervades and brightens heaven. What do I mean by that? Number one, we will live in that brilliance visually, right? That's particularly true here in Revelation because that's the point being made that this visual light, this visual glory will lighten all of heaven. So we will live in that brilliance visually. And by that I mean that we will live in heaven, and I'm going to state two things about that, that we will live in heaven physically, yes, but because the Lamb's glory is here said to lighten heaven, the emphasis is on the light of that glory and that it will be displayed visually throughout heaven and we will live under that. We will live in and under the visible display of that glory. We will live in its brilliance. And verse 11 picks up on that. Revelation 21, 11. Verse 11 picks up on that and states that the light of the glory of God that lightens heaven will be like a clear jasper stone. Maybe something like a diamond. In other words, the glory of the Lamb will not just illuminate heaven, but it will shine as through a stone like that and then reflect and bounce and shine off of all of the things in heaven, illuminating them and sending them into a living, dazzling display of splendor. Like those walls. Do you remember the walls of heaven that we read about in verse 18? They are said to be like a jasper stone, which most often has a reddish hue to it. Back up here in verse 11, it's unusual. It's clear as crystal. But here, jasper stones, usually they can have a couple of other colors, but usually it has a reddish hue to it. And the light of the Lamb's glory is illuminating and reflecting off of those reddish-hued walls, which most, you know, and then illuminating heaven. What is that going to be like? Well... Those walls are seated on foundations. And in verses 19 and 20, it describes the foundations in terms of colors, the colors of gems. Have you ever been to a gem store? About two hours away from us, just about 20 minutes from where Brother John Trumbull lives, there's the Crystal Caves. Now, they're not caves in the side of a mountain. That's a, a store that's there. And you can walk in here, and here is this display of amethyst. And here's this display of green gems. And here's this display of, of maybe yellowish kind of gems. And you walk in there, and, you know, you're just kind of browsing around, looking around. You don't know what you're looking at. And all of a sudden, the shopkeeper comes over and flicks on the lights, and the amethyst goes, whoa, the brilliance of the purple. And then the green, up comes the lights of the, of the display. Whoa, look at that. It's breathtaking. And here are these foundations on these walls. And the glory of Christ is shining through this jasper and reflecting, you know, this reddish hue. And, going, and, and just reflecting and bouncing and shining and looking and glistening and through all of heaven, these walls like that. Not only that, but they're streets of gold. 
and this glory is radiating off of the streets of gold. Not only that, but there's the river of life flowing out of the throne of God. You know what it's like when the sun reflects off of a river, or you see it colors, or the river or the lake is so still that there's the mountain behind it, but it comes down and there's another mountain in the river. And here is the glory of the Lamb just reflecting all over the city with these brilliant colors like millions of CDs turned upside down and just moving around like this. I mean, heaven is going to be absolutely spectacular. These are just finite words that God is trying to describe the infinite with. This, these words probably don't even do justice to what heaven will be like. And you're going to see it with your eyes. And your eyes may be brown or green. Maybe your eyes will be blue like mine. But if you know Christ, he's going to give you new glorified eyes. And you're going to be able to take all of that in. It will be breathtaking magnificent splendor of all of those colors. I mean, really, folks, it's just hard to imagine this. But there's something else related to this idea of visually seeing the glory of God. I think there's something else that the brilliant visual display of God's, the Lamb's glory will illuminate. Now, I'm going to go a little bit of kind of a spiritual speculation here. I don't do this often. I think I got some Bible for this. I'm not saying it's totally this way, but it very well could be. It could be that the brilliant visual display of the Lamb's glory will illuminate our Christ-likeness. Now, why do I say that, and what do I mean by that? You don't need to turn there. Four passages. 1 John 3, 1 to 3, that Brother Matt has quoted on a couple of occasions, tells us that when we see him, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now Moses one time did see God as he is and he came down from the mountain and he glowed like the glory. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 it picks up on that very fact and in that passage, remember, it talks about Moses in 2 Corinthians 3 about having to put on a veil. Remember it talks about that? It's, it's drawing over that analogy. And, and, and in that passage, it's talking about our seeing the glory and, and transform from glory to glory. We're being transformed by the Spirit of God from attribute to attribute. So there is the visual display of glory, like Moses up there. We will see him as he is. And there is the verbal, there is the attributes of God part of the glory. And in Exodus 34, God gave to Moses a verbal pronouncement of that. So in 2 Corinthians 3, the Spirit changes us into the same glory, and when we see Him, we'll be like Him, and Moses' face shown as the glory of God. Could it be? Notice how I put that. Don't go away and say, I said this will be the way it will be. But could it be? Really, folks, in light of that, we will see Him as He is. Could it be that in heaven... We will not just possess the character of Christ, but we will radiate or reflect his glory and light. As Moses' face shone and reflected the glory of God. No doubt, not to the same extent, obviously. He is deity and we will not be. But he will change our vile bodies, Philippians 3.21, into like to his glorious body. And we will see him as he is. Could it be that our face will shine with the glory that we're living in? Not just for 40 days, but living in that glory for eternity. That's something to think about. And to talk about the next time you get together as a family or as a church. 
but that could be. Folks, what will it mean to, for us to live in the glory of the Lamb? Number one, it means that we will live in the brilliant visual display of it. And for all of eternity, we will be able to bask in the radiance and the beauty that it displays. But it means this secondly. Living in the Lamb's glory means, folks, that the Lamb will display toward us what he verbally declared to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord. The Lord God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy and forgiving iniquity. Remember that Ezekiel saw the visual display of God's glory, and we will, we will live in that, but we will also live because his glory was also verbally pronounced, folks. Living and the Lamb's glory lightning heaven means we will also live in the verbal aspect of that. Living in the Lamb's glory means that we will not just enjoy the visual display of it, but we will also enjoy the Lamb ministering to us through those divine attributes that are part of His glory. In other words, for eternity, we will be the recipients of His grace and His love and His mercy and His kindness and His generosity. And if you need a passage to hang your hat on about that, turn over to Revelation chapter 7. Look what it says. Revelation 7. The end of this chapter contains information regarding the tribulation saints and those individuals who were saved in the tribulation and died before the end of it. Whether of natural causes or martyrdom, they've died. And in verses 15 through 17, there's a revelation regarding the care that the Lamb will show to them. Look at verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. That sounds like revelation. And the tabernacle. Notice, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. In verse 15, they will dwell with the Lamb, fellowship and communion. In verse 16, they shall never hunger or thirst. Remember these people were in the tribulation. All bodily deprivation will be gone. In verse 16, no sun or heat will touch them. No external deprivation will harm them. Now in heaven they're safe. In verse 17, the lamb shall feed them. That word feed is literally the word for shepherd. For all eternity, the lamb will shepherd them. The lamb will patiently care for his sheep, guarding them from any further torment and caring for them as Psalm 23 extols. In verse 17, he shall lead them to refreshing streams of water. He who is the fountain of life and out of whose throne flows the river of life will quench their thirst and satisfy all their longings. And at the end of verse 17, he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Tears brought by sorrow, tears from grief or pain, tears from affliction and pressures and loneliness. But here's a sudden change of sorrow to delight and comfort. Think of the magnitude of the eternal bliss of heaven. And here we are living visually under the Lamb's glory, but also living under and being the recipients of those wonderful attributes of the Lamb whereby He feeds us and shepherds us for all eternity.
here is some of what it will be like to live in the Lamb's glory. Awed and amazed by the visual display of it, shepherded and cared for by all of his glorious attributes and perfections. No wonder, folks, no wonder John, isolated out there on the Isle of Patmos, wrote in Revelation 22:20, even so come Lord Jesus. What would you pray after being on an island like that and being an aged old man all by yourself and God says, this is the where you're going. This will be your home. Well, Lord, come on and take me. I'm ready to go. Come, Lord Jesus. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. Now, here is the story of Israel's exodus as it culminates with eternal life in the presence of the God of glory. Once we were in bondage to sin, enslaved by its awful tyranny, but through the death and resurrection of Christ, God has delivered us from Egypt and even, even now is leading us to the safety in the harbor of heaven. True, there are times when this life seems like a wilderness. But folks, would you have it any other way? If this life were a little bit of heaven on earth, you know what we would do? We would do the same thing as Peter and say, well, let's just build some tabernacles and stay here. Do you really want to be rid of the wildernesses of life so that this is heaven? Oh, not after viewing this. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Look what awaits us in the Lamb City. And our prayer is that soon He will come down from glory to take us into the glory that will never end. No wonder D.L. Moody died as he did. D.L. Moody was a well-known American evangelist who traveled in England and America and I think even Canada. I don't ever think that he came to Australia, but very well-known down. It is said, and I'm taking a resources word for this, but it's said that during his evangelistic crusades and his entire ministry that he, over a million people, came to know Christ through those crusades. And as evangelist, some of you are aware of this, as an evangelist, Moody used to stand up in front of a crowd of thousands of people and say to them that one day you will read in the newspaper that D.O. Moody has died. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the Spirit shall live forever. Well, the day of Moody's departure finally came. 22nd of December, 1899, when Moody was 62 years old. And he was at his home in Northfield, Massachusetts, and was surrounded by his family. And as the end came very near, Moody said aloud, Earth recedes and heaven opens before me. And Moody's son, Will, who was closest to the bedside, assumed that his father was dreaming and voiced his thoughts. To which Moody replied, No, this is no dream, Will. It is beautiful. It's like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There's no valley here. God is calling me. I must go. And a brief time later, he was gone, but more alive than ever. In the sweet by and by, there's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar. 
And the Father waits over the way, a dwelling place made for us. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we will meet on that beautiful shore. And we'll be more alive than ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this evening. Lord, we long for heaven. This world is grand. It is your creation. The colors are beautiful. Lord, the symmetry is outstanding. The sunny days are bright and glorious. But Father, they're nothing like what awaits us in heaven. And we long for heaven. This world is not our home. We are like Abraham, just passing through. Lord, take us home to heaven soon. That we could live in the glory of your Son and enjoy his shepherding care and fellowship with you every day. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray this in his name. Amen.